Hello, I'm Rabbi Ed Bernstein. Welcome to the My Teacher Podcast, a celebration of the people who shape our lives. My dear friends Matt Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker were on their way to enjoy a holiday in Petra, Jordan, but they never made it. On February 25, 1996, a terrorist suicide bomber detonated himself on the number 18 bus in Jerusalem, killing 26 innocent people, including Matt and Sarah. Their loss devastated everyone who knew them, and the attack that took their lives had geopolitical ripple effects that are evident still today. In this special two-part series of My Teacher Podcast, I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by Mike Kelly, a renowned journalist and columnist for the Bergen Record in northern New Jersey, who did extensive reporting on this attack. This episode is scheduled to drop on February 5th, 2021, what would have been Matt's 50th birthday. When Matt died, he had just celebrated his 25th birthday. As we mark an ominous anniversary of the death of Matt and Sarah, we cross a dubious threshold in which Matt has been gone longer than he was alive. Sarah, who was a little younger, crossed this threshold a couple years ago. Those of us who knew them are as committed as ever to preserving their memory. They were, after all, great teachers, and we still have much to learn from them. Now, on to my conversation with Mike Kelly. I'm honored to be joined by Mike Kelly, renowned journalist and author of several books, who for many years has been a widely read columnist for the Bergen Record in northern New Jersey. This edition of My Teacher Podcast will take an unusual format. I will interview Mike on his career as a journalist and focus in particular on his acclaimed book, The Bus on Jaffa Road. Then we will turn the tables and Mike will interview me on my connection to principal subjects of that book, my late dear friends, Matt Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker of Blessed Memory. They were killed in a terrorist suicide bombing on the number 18 bus in Jerusalem on February 25th, 1996. This year marks the 25th anniversary of that horrific event. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to engage in discussion with Mike Kelly on the meaning of this ominous anniversary. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you on my teacher podcast. Thank you, Ed. It's great to reconnect with you because we had such wonderful times as I was researching the bus on Jaffa Road, and you were such a great help to me. But thank you. I'm grateful to be on your podcast. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into that topic. And as I do with all of my guests, I'm interested in origin stories and learning about the teachers and mentors that shape our lives. So I'm wondering if you could take us back to your early life and early adulthood and talk a bit about your background and what led you into a career in journalism. Well, um, 
it, it was curiosity, I guess you could say. Like so many kids, I wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees. And when I discovered that that was not going to happen, <laughs> you know, I, I started looking around to what other kinds of topics and, you know, careers might interest me. And when I was in high school, I'm, I'm the son of a Marine officer, a career officer in the Marine Corps, uh, World War II career and Vietnam. He's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And so we moved around quite a bit when I was a kid. And we moved to upstate New York for his final assignment. And that's when I started high, uh, my sophomore year of high school in a little town called Fayetteville, New York. And basically looking for friends, I suppose, I joined the high school newspaper club, having no idea what it was what what to do or how to do it. And and I was instantly hooked. And my first byline was, if you can believe this, the big controversy in the school was whether or not the school should allow a special smoking area for students outside the school uh, in, a, in, a, in a small squared off area. Now, if you know upstate New York and Fayetteville was in the Syracuse area, that's right close to the snow belt. And in the wintertime, you don't want to smoke cigarettes outside, but yet this is what people wanted to do. Anyway, that was my first byline. Ever since high school, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a newspaper guy. And my three goals when I started out, although not really realizing it at the time, I, 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 I wanted to be a columnist. I wanted to do some foreign reporting, which I've been blessed to be able to do. And I wanted to write books. And thankfully, my career has allowed me to do all three. That's great. Did you have any particular teachers and mentors who guided you along the path to journalism or, or favorite editors who helped you hone your craft? Oh, God, yes. First of all, I guess one could call him a, a mentor. When I was really starting out, sort of kind of trying to find my voice as a writer in college, I discovered Pete Hamill, the columnist uh, in New York City. He just died. Yeah, just died this past summer. And I, I would not count myself as one of his friends. We were acquaintances. We knew each other a bit. But there was something about his writing that really spoke to me. And as a young man, I became just caught up with how to pull emotion and facts together as a journalist. And I thought Pete Hamill was able to do that really quite well. When I started writing books in the 1990s, I was just absolutely blessed to have an editor by the name of Samuel Vaughn. And Sam is now deceased, but as is Pete Hamill. But Sam was the, he was the editor of my first book, which is an account of a white police officer shooting a black teenager and all of the racial upheaval that resulted. Listeners might want to know the name of that book. What's the, the name is Color Lines. Sam was in semi-retirement at the time. He had been the publisher of Doubleday. He had been an instrumental figure in developing Alex Haley's Roots book. Sam had been Dwight Eisenhower's editor when Eisenhower wrote his memoirs in the 1960s. For many, many years, Sam had been editor to a number of writers, most particularly William F. Buckley and some of his books. Probably one of the most famous books that Sam edited was a book called Fried Green Tomatoes, which was made into a famous movie. And then Sam took me on and he lived in a nearby town here in northern New Jersey. And sometimes he would call me up maybe once a month, once every other month, and he would say, what are you doing now? And I often tell him and say, nothing. <laughs> 
because I knew he would want to meet and we would get together in a coffee shop and talk for hours about writing. And that's where I really, I think, grew to be. It was like taking a graduate course in, in writing. And then, of course, there have been some really wonderful editors in the newspaper that I worked for, the Bergen Record. And one of the most notable was a, was a guy named Marty Gottlieb. Marty started at the record, then he went to the New York Times, and he came back to the record and really guided us through some really, really terrific times. And I looked to him as a, as a real mentor of sorts. So let's go to the mid-1990s. You're, you've established your career at the Bergen record. And in Israel on February 25th, 1996, there was this horrific suicide bombing that in a time and place where unfortunately these things were not entirely unusual, this one particularly captured people's attention. So can you take us to that time? Where were you when you heard about this and how what was your involvement in reporting this story at that time? Well, yes, you're correct. There was a lot of terrorist bombings that were taking place, and we had already had a horrific terrorist bombing that had taken the life the year before of another young woman from northern New Jersey. Her name was Elisa Flathow, and her story is weaves a little bit in and out of the story, uh, The Bus on Jaffa Road. But when Sarah and Matt were killed in February of 1996, I was, you know, working as a newspaper columnist. And I was trying to figure out, well, how do I enter this story? Because here I am in northern New Jersey. What can I do about this? So I, I went to Sarah's home and knocked on the door. This was after the funeral and they and the family was sitting shiva, as they say. And I asked if I could speak to Arlene Duker and she was just so gracious to me. Sarah's mother. Sarah's mom, she yeah. Lives yeah. in Teaneck, New Jersey. She does. And I, um, what struck me about Sarah at the time was that she had obviously been killed by a Palestinian terrorist. But at the same time, Sarah was trying and expressing many sentiments, and she had written about this extensively, that were very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. I, I wouldn't say that she was an outright Palestinian supporter, but it just struck me of how unjust this was, that this was a young woman who was trying to wrestle with the conundrum of the Middle East, you know, the Palestinian, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and wrestling with it in a very real way. And yet, as she's wrestling with it and trying to come to terms with it on her own, she ends up being a victim of that terrorism itself. And so I wrote about that and didn't really follow up on it too much. At, at the time, I was starting to broaden my reach quite a bit as a columnist, and my newspaper was sending me overseas. So I went a couple of years after that to Northern Ireland to cover the sectarian troubles there and the Good Friday Peace Accords. I was sent to Africa to write about healthcare and AIDS. And then after that, I said to my editors, I said, I really want to go to the Middle East. And this was 2001. It was before the 9-11 attacks. And because what we had seen in the 1990s was all the hope from the Oslo Peace Accords. We thought the Oslo Peace Accords would finally bring peace to that region. And by 2001, that was not happening. We were in the midst of what was now called the Second Intifada. So I ended up writing about two families, one Jewish and one Palestinian. And by way of background, in Nor here in northern New Jersey, the Israeli-Palestinian story is very much a local story for us. 
because there is such a large Palestinian population, mostly in the Patterson area. And there's a very large and influential Jewish population here, mostly in Bergen County. And some of the names you, you, you know are familiar, people like Abe Foxman, the longtime head now former head of the Anti-Defamation League, he lives in this area. The Kushner family, Jared Kushner and his father, they live in this area. And there are many others. And a number of synagogues are involved in partnering with communities in Israel in many ways. So what I wanted to do was to try to make this very big story smaller. It took me months to do this. And I found a Palestinian family and a Jewish family who had lived here, who had moved back to the Middle East in the hope that the Oslo Peace Accords would finally bring peace to their homeland. And I found this Jewish family in a uh, what we what we call a settlement, uh, the settlement of Zigot, which is right outside of Ramallah. And I found a Palestinian family in Ramallah. And so what I wrote about is that here in northern New Jersey, they were five, six miles apart. And over there, they were maybe a mile apart. And yet there was a universe of violence between them. And so I spent several weeks over there living with each family and then chronicling the daily violence that took place between those communities. A lot of shooting, a lot of bombs going off and that sort of thing. So that was my first series over there. And I went back again in 2004. My assignment was, and you're going to laugh at this, to find the gay lover of Governor James McGreevy of New Jersey. As you may recall, he resigned from the gubernatorialship after being caught in a love affair with a man who was an Israeli uh, intelligence officer. And so I was assigned to go back there and, and find him, which I did, and I wrote about it. And then I told my editors, I said, but while I'm over here, I need to go back up and into Jerusalem and, and the West Bank and really you know, get a sense of what the situation is there now. So I wrote a number of pieces about that. And then in 2006, if you recall, there was one of those moments when we thought peace was again at hand. And I said to my editors, I want to go back again. And they said, sure, go back. And I did a whole series of pieces about some of the issues affecting Israel at the time. And one of them was the question of terrorism. And I felt like if the Palestinians and the Israelis were ever going to make peace, what would they do about the legacy of bloodshed between them? How would they come to grips with this? And again, this is my style, I'm trying to make a very big story smaller, I decided to revisit. Keep in mind, this was 2006, so it was 10 years after Matt and Sarah had been killed, and I decided to revisit the death of Sarah Duker. If I can just back up for a second, there was an important event that happened in 2001 that we glossed over, and I just want to frame 9-11 as a, an event that had influence in your career. So can you take us back to 9-11 and where were you on that day and how did that shape your uh, coverage going forward? Thank you for pulling me back in. <laughs> I, uh, I know it's hard to ignore 9-11 because it's been such a pivotal moment in my life and, and my career. I was in the newspaper office early that morning somewhat unusual. I had worked through the weekend. If you recall, 9-11 took place on a Tuesday. And uh, I'd worked through the weekend, had a very long day the, the day before. And I was basically on that particular day trying to put in an early day and maybe take off at midday and just, you know, relax. Of course, that did not happen. And I was sitting at my desk and one of my editors, the news, there were, weren't very many people in the newsroom at the time. One of my editors yelled across the newsroom and said, Mike, I think a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I could literally turn from my desk and see out the window. We could see it was about 18 miles away, the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. And I could see smoke coming out of the North Tower. 
So I ran across the newsroom and I turned on the TV and they had live pictures from a helicopter there, same pictures I'm sure the whole world saw. And I thought to myself as I was walking over to the TV, I bet some fool in a Piper Cub was trying to fly between the buildings. And then I saw the hole in the North Tower. I said, that's no Piper Cub. So I grabbed, I literally grabbed two notebooks and my credentials and I jumped in the car and I headed for New York City. And I got caught in a traffic jam heading to the Lincoln Tunnel and I got off there and I made my way through Jersey City and other parts of Hudson County, eventually left my car in a, in a diner in parking lot in Jersey City, walked to the riverfront. At that point, the t- both towers had fallen. And then I saw a tugboat with some police and firefighters getting on to go across and perhaps perform some rescues. And I asked, could I go with you? And they said, sure. And I jumped on the tugboat and I didn't come home for three days. So that was my entry into 9-11. And from there, I followed the 9-11 story across the world. I, I was eventually dispatched to Southeast Asia and specifically Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, to track down two of the hijackers who eventually made it to a, a cheap motel here in northern New Jersey. And I was fascinated by their journey. And the, there's been quite a bit now written about these two hijackers and how they were helped by the Saudi Arabian government. And I'm still writing about that. To this day, I'm very much involved in writing about these two hijackers. Their names are Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. They were al-Qaeda operatives that the CIA was tracking. And it's a famous story now. The CIA was tracking them all across Southeast Asia, Kuala Lumpur, Thailand. And then these two came to the United States months before the 9-11 attacks. And the CIA just gave up the trail and never told the FBI until it was too late. And and so for more than a year, two Al-Qaeda operatives were not only loose in the United States, but they were taking flying lessons and that sort of thing. And so that's a story that I'm still following. But yes, very much so. The 9-11 story is very much a part of me. I've spent a considerable amount of time at Ground Zero. Thank God my health is fine, although I'm registered in the Mount Sinai uh, with many, many other people, uh, thousands of other people, Mount Sinai health monitoring program. So 9-11 still follows me, yes. And 9-11 was very much a part of my reasoning in wanting to go back to Israel to sort of chronicle the level of terrorism there. Because even though they were not Palestinian terrorists that attacked the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and hijacked all those planes on 9-11, I still wanted to understand the ramifications of terrorism on a much more personal level. So that's what kind of drove me back in 2006 again to Israel and the West Bank to try to understand what was going on. So in 2006, you made a concerted decision to return to the story of Sarah Duker, who was from your community and uh, her boyfriend, Matt Eisenfeld. So what did you discover at that time and what prompted you to go further down that path? Well, I always thought that suicide bombings were carried out by one crazy person, you know, a suicide bomber. So in the course of doing my research, I got my hands on a report by the United States State Department about the murder of Sarah Duker and Matt Eisenfeld. And uh, believe it or not, if you were killed overseas, uh, our State Department does a report on what happened over there. And uh, sometimes these reports are classified, sometimes they're not, but I was able to get my hands on the report. And what jumped out at me, Ed, was the fact that there wasn't just one person involved in this. this. The U.S. State Department had identified about eight or nine Palestinian operatives, all members of Hamas, 
who were involved in this bombing. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, this was not, this was not some crazy person with a bomb. This was, this was a concerted, organized operation. That may seem somewhat naive to think that way, but it was a bit of a surprise to me that it was so well organized. So I decided to do some preliminary research on this before I headed to Israel. So uh, I hope you don't laugh at this. I called up the Israelis and I said, listen, I noticed that the organizer of this, this operation, a man named Hassan Salome, that he's in jail. And uh, I said, said could, I, could I interview him? And I, I, somebody from the Israeli government you know, took my phone call and said, yeah, that's very nice. Okay, yeah, we'll get back to you, click. And he, they, they hang up the phone. Several months later, uh, I, I found myself in the Israeli consulate uh, across the Hudson River in New York City, talking to some Israeli counterintelligence agents, explaining what my project was that I wanted to interview this guy. And they nodded very politely and said, okay, we'll get back to you. And I never heard anything for weeks. And then right before I left, they said, we'll try to get in touch with you when you're in Israel. What's your cell phone number? And I said, here it is. And I gave it to them. And I didn't hear anything. And so I was in Israel and I was doing other stories. And I was in my hotel room one morning and the phone rings. And it was a guy, and I talk about this in the book. Uh, it was a guy from uh, Eshel Prison uh, in, in, in southern Israel. And he said, so I hear you want to interview Salome. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, get down to the prison tomorrow morning and you can talk to him. And I said, okay. So, so I got myself to the prison and what they do in Israel is somewhat different from what they do, well, quite different from what they do here in the United States. If I want to interview a prisoner in the United States in a, in a jail, be it a state prison or, or local jail or a, a federal prison, I would uh, call up the prison and say, I would like to interview prisoner X. And they would say, fine, send us a letter or, email or something. And we will ask that prisoner if he or she wants to talk to you. So it's in, so the prisoner knows that I, who I am and what I want to talk about and that sort of thing. That's not how they do it in Israel. What they did is they told Salome that there's a visitor here to see you and they brought him into the room. And so I knew this ahead of time. I knew what the drill was. So I figured, well, and, and, and I, and they said to me at that point, you introduce yourself to him and he has then the he then has the choice to tell you to you know he doesn't want to speak to you or he will speak to you so i figured i would get just one i could get one question in just one question and again i'm thinking as a newspaper guy what question could i ask him that i could write a newspaper column about okay Poss possibly okay and 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 in particular if he told me to you know, to, to basically take a hike. And so I decided that I would ask him this question. I would say, and I said to him, and he did understand a little bit of English. Uh, and I don't speak Hebrew and I, and I don't speak Arabic. So I had translators going, helping me here. But I asked him, do you know the name Sarah Duker? And he said, yes. And at that moment in time, I knew that I had something I could write about because at least this killer knew the name of somebody that he had actually killed. And of course, this was a person who lived in our area here in Northern New Jersey, and I could write about this and maybe I could make something of it. And then from there, so began a very lengthy interview where I was trying to basically confront him with the fact that he's the guy that had 
convinced the suicide young man who was a suicide bomber to actually carry out the job. And I wanted to really get to the heart of what kind of evil is at play here when you ask, you approach a naive 19-year-old kid and convince that kid to strap on a highly explosive bomb to then, to then get on a bus and then set that bomb off and kill dozens of people and injure dozens of people. What is the thought process here? And after all these years, 10 years at that point, was there any remorse? And what struck me as a, as a writer, I often look for characters who are able to change over time, particularly if they've done something wrong. You know, uh, if, if I was a sports writer, I might be, you know, approaching the, the quarterback who fumbled, you know, long ago in a Super Bowl game and somehow get, you know, what, what was, what was his journey like after all these years, after making such a momentous mistake, that sort of thing. And the same was, same is true with interviewing political figures, uh, you know, in, 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 in how their lives change after horrible mistakes or, and the same is true of interviewing criminals. I'm often looking for, do you have any sense of change of heart? Has something changed in you over the years that, Get, you know, might offer some insight into this person's thought process. And what I found in Salome was that he was just a, a stone cold killer still. And nothing I could do shook him off that. And so I wrote about this. It was a major story in our newspaper. I came back to the United States and I approached Sarah's family again and also Matthew's family to say, look it, I just want to let you know that I've interviewed the man who orchestrated the bombing of uh, that, that took your son and daughter. And they commented and, and, and I was able to include some of their comments in my account. And it was a major story. And then I put it aside. And then remember I talked about my mentor and teacher, Sam Vaughn. We used to go to lunch at, uh, quite frequently and he took me to lunch more than a year later. And he said, is there anything going on in your life? Uh, you know, you wanna write about another book? At that point, I had had two books out, and I said, "You know, Sam, uh, terrorism is just fascinating me, and I, I and and it's got a hold on me, and and I'm not quite sure how to write about it." And then I told him the story of my interview with Hassan Salome, and he just looked at me and he said, "That's your book, Mike." And so that's how I began this book, the Bustle Jaffa Road. I want to just note for the record that as tragic, as horrific as the murder of Matt and Sarah is, this was a mass murder. There were 26 people Correct. murdered on this. And place. over 40 so, injured. Yes, it would have been horrible enough if only if they were the only victims, but unfortunately it had a much larger tally of life. Were they the only Americans? Who were no. Killed? No, there were there were two there were there were two others who were killed. Uh, well, actually, one of them was badly injured. She died a number of years later of her injuries. But yes, there were there was there were two uh, two other Americans on the bus. But the others were all Israelis, and there were there were actually a couple of Palestinians who were killed as well. This was a if if, if your listeners know the number eighteen bus. This is basically the bus that you know essentially goes down Broadway. Right. It is one of the main bus routes in Jerusalem. It runs from one side of the city to the other. And so there are all kinds of people on it. And because it's on Jaffa Road, 
there are no buses, by the way, on Jaffa Road now. There's a there's a light rail line, but but because it was on Jaffa Road, then it carried and it was so close to uh, East Jerusalem, and and it, it kind of ran right along the border of East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, and so it, there were a number of people coming there from the Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, as well as Israelis from West Jerusalem. And so it was a bus that frequently carried a real cross-section of people from that area. And that was the case on, on this particular day. And I think that was one major reason why this particular young man who was a Palestinian kid uh, was able to get on the bus without too much suspicion. Nobody, nobody thought it odd that a, a young Palestinian man would be getting on the bus. Let's talk about him for a minute. What was, what was his name? Abdul Warja, yeah. And you met his parents yeah, in your reporting for the book. I did. What was that like? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do, again, Ed, was to try to get to the heart of the human heart here. And so I, I wanted to track down his family. Uh, I, I didn't know much about him at all. Only what I could glean from my contacts with Israeli counterintelligence, but also from newspaper accounts and that sort of thing. And that wasn't much. So I, I got in the car and drove out to his, uh, I tracked down the town where he was from. And I drove out there and I was able to find his father and had a lengthy interview with his father, asking him basically the, the kind of question anybody would ask, which is, did you know that your son was going to be involved in this? And what was so strange here is I'm not sure his son was, uh, and I, I, I still wonder about this, but his son did not appear to be involved in any sort of Hamas activity. How he was brought into Hamas, however, and how he was basically suckered into this role as a suicide bomber has a lot to do with how these things happen. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm still often curious as to what is the change in the human heart that takes somebody from, you know, ordinary person, and this kid was learning to be a, a tile, a layer of tile. What takes you from that position to the point where you are willing to strap on all these explosives and carry out, in their view, in, their, in the warped theology of suicide bombing, uh, an act of God? And what I think was happening here were a couple of things, one of which was the fact that, you know, I don't think I need to tell you and your listeners the intense hatred that go, and, and, and animosity that exists within the Palestinian community, but this, this kind of warped belief that if you give up your life this way, that you will be guaranteed a spot in paradise. And all of those things came into play here, uh, I believe. I also think there was a monetary aspect. I've since reported that Salome has made as much as $300,000 for his family, paid to that family's bank account from Hamas. And then I think the Warja family has also benefited financially from this. Um, although the father assured me that he had not, but I, I, I've since come to believe that that may or may not be true. There have been a number of releases of prisoners, particularly, I remember with the Gilad Shalit sure. release from captivity in Gaza, there was a, a very controversial prisoner exchange and a number of notorious terrorists were set free by the Israelis. 
is Salome still in prison? Yes. Is, Salome is still in prison. Uh, his crime was so egregious, he didn't make that cut. Well, to give you an idea, he carried out, he organized several uh, terrorist bombings. He was convicted on, on 48 murders. I don't think we have a serial killer anywhere in the world with that much blood on his or her hands. But Salome is, in, is still in jail. When I went back to Israel again uh, to, in 2012, uh, not only to research this book, but on other assignments. I was there twice in 2012. The uh, the Israeli government had uh, he he Salome was still so radicalized that at this point in time they would not let me speak to him. But he has done some writing, he's uh, and, and that sort of thing, and I was able to obtain some of that. Yeah, he is considered, I think, one of the top five prisoner the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. I doubt we will see him released anytime soon. Perhaps never. Uh, it, it, there's just too much, as one Israeli official said to me, there's just too much blood on his hands. When you were reporting the bus on Jaffa Road, you had some macro takeaways and as well as micro. And the macro takeaways are where you unpack the geopolitical significance of this particular terrorist event. So before we go into the micro, I'm wondering if you could sum up the, the key macro takeaways in your reporting on the bus on Jaffa Road. Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, this was a, a hugely consequential bombing. Let me just take you back to that moment in history. Itzhak Rabin had been killed only months earlier, and the sec so-called Second Intifada was getting much more violent. Israelis were wondering, and many had were wondering about the future of the Oslo peace accords. In fact, most people who knew anything about the Middle East uh, were wondering about the Oslo peace accords. Could these peace accords actually hold up? And they were not holding up. The suicide bombing campaign by Hamas and Islamic Jihad was really cutting into public sentiment public support for the Oslo Peace Accords. And it, it had gotten to a point where the Israeli populace was getting extraordinarily frustrated and did not know what to do about these, these, these bombings. Keep in mind, three years earlier, 1993, there was all this hope. And suddenly by 1996, we, we were getting to a point where it, it did not appear that the Oslo Peace Accords were going to hold up unless something could be done here. And so after Itzhak Rabin had been assassinated, his deputy Shimon Peres had taken over. And so there was an election being called in 1996. It was for May of 1996. These bombings, there were a series of them. The, the, the first big one, however, was uh, the one on Jaffa Road that I write about. But there were, two, there were several others that, in which a number of Israelis were killed. The Israeli population was getting extraordinarily frustrated. And there was an election in May of 1996, and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu won that election, and that ushered in the, the era of Netanyahu, and we are still living with that today. And I think it really ushered in a much tougher and understandably tougher stance by the Israelis toward any sort of peace accord, how it would, come, how it would be conducted, what, what would be the terms of that, and that sort of thing. And I think these bombings basically tore apart whatever was left. And at that point, there wasn't a lot left on the Oslo Peace Accords. But these bombings 
basically tore apart whatever was left. So that's sort of the geopolitical setting right there. There was also the element of Iran's funding of Hamas. And yes. Your book reports on the role of the U.S. government in enacting sanctions against Iran and trying to get reparations from Iran to pay the fees. Sure. Well, a couple of things here that I was to discover in my research. First of all, Hassan Salome, he was trained in Iran on how to make bombs. So that was the, that was the, that was the beginning of the Iranian connection with Hamas. But what I was also able to discover <clears throat> through my research is that, well, how did these bombing operations get funded? And and largely through the uh, through the work of the Duker and Eisenfeld families, and also the efforts of Stephen Flatow, who's who's as I mentioned earlier, whose daughter was killed a year earlier in another bombing by us carried out by Islamic Jihad, we were able to determine that it was the Iranians who had been funding terrorist activities by Palestinians, and this was quite a revelation quite frankly. And I'm surprised that the United States government did not make more of it at the time. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was my opinion that the U.S. government in the late 90s and early 2000s was actually trying to downplay the Iranian connection. Why uh, had a lot to do with the efforts by the Clinton administration and subsequently the Bush administration to try to establish some kind of of diplomatic relations with Iran. But what had happened there was a, was, a, was a kind of dastardly act. I mean, there was literally money coming from Iran, which helped to finance terrorist operations by Hamas, uh, Islamic Jihad, and others, which killed American citizens. And so how did we, how did we learn more about this? Well, it was the efforts of the Flato families, uh, family, the Duker family, and the Eisenfeld family to file lawsuits here in the United States in which they sued the government of Iran and they won those lawsuits. And, and as a result, we're able to put on the record an enormous amount of, of evidence about the Iranian connection to Palestinian terrorism. In your book, you weave together this macro geopolitical narrative right. of how this, this bombing was interwoven with all of these events of the world and decisions of politicians and, and so forth. And yet you also tell a story of individuals, of human beings and their families who were affected by this. Can you talk a bit about what led you on the path to bring out that human element and what, why was it important to tell that story? Well, at the heart of all conflicts, Ed, uh, is there are human beings there. Uh, whether they be evil, as in the case of Hassan Salome, whether they be, you know, just uh, bombers, such as the young Palestinian kid that was persuaded to set off the bomb, or whether they be victims. And I had really two narratives here that I, I had to make some very hard decisions about. The first narrative involved the Fladow family and Elisa and her death, because they all came together in these lawsuits, okay? And then I had the story of Matt and Sarah, and I decided to tell the story of Matt and Sarah to highlight that and really talk about the bombing of the Jaffa Road number 18 bus, because uh, I was also able to find out who actually carried out that bombing and interview that person, Hassan Salome, and also track down the family of the actual suicide bomber. And if I could take it one more step, by sheer luck, by, I guess, writer's luck, 
I was able to track down the prosecutor who actually put Hassan Salame in jail. But, but I want to talk about how I dove into the stories of Matt and Sarah. I was really struck by their story. Uh, these were not just talented young people. Sarah was a graduate of Barnard College. Matt was a graduate of Yale. Matt was studying to be a rabbi at Jewish Theological Seminary on the edge of the Barnard campus here in New York City. Meet Sarah, they fall in love. The two decide to go to Israel. She's working for Hebrew University as a researcher in environmental biology. He's continuing his rabbinic studies over there. And they were all, the two of them were heading toward marriage. And I, I, I not to be over romanticize this, but I saw it almost as a, as a somewhat of a, a Romeo and Juliet kind of story here. These wonderful lovers who found themselves caught up in, a, in something larger. We don't know if they were going to get married yet. One of the, I mean, this being nonfiction, I, I had to, you know, to track down as much uh, uh, that I could verify factually. And we we never were able to determine what, well, I can tell you for a fact that if they if they had decided to get married, they had not announced it to either family. However, many people, and I think yourself as well, many friends that I interviewed believed that that's exactly where they were headed. And in fact, on their final day together, they were on a trip to go see some ruins in Jordan. Again, you know, looking at the geopolitics here, they were able to go as as Jews and and residents of Israel to Jordan because there had been some peace accord between Israel and Jordan and you know people who lived in Israel could travel to Jordan and look at some of the ancient ruins in the in the city of Petra and that was where they were headed that day lots of people believed that on that trip Matt was probably going to propose marriage to Sarah I don't know if that was the case but I like to think that certainly if not that trip but in the in the near future that these two would have been formally engaged to be married. And, and of course, you know, probably today, Matt would be a rabbi. I believe Sarah would be a prominent biology professor or environmentalist, and uh, they would probably have children and they would have gone on with their lives, but their lives were cut short. And I was just struck by the tragedy of all of that. You know, here were two young people with such talent and so many dreams. And at the same time, they were also trying to dive into their own place in Judaism. I mean, Matt was studying, where, where does he want to be? He was studying to be a rabbi in the conservative end of Judaism, but did, how much of, did he want to, you know, venture closer to the Orthodox end or that sort of thing? Sarah was in a more egalitarian feel about her own place in Judaism. And so I was just fascinated by their faith journeys as well. And that's, that's how I came to meet you, as a matter of fact, uh, and, and your own research and, and efforts to pull together some of their writings that you eventually pulled together for your book, Love Finer Than One. So I, I, I wanted to pull together the geopolitics, the whole story of terrorism, but I also wanted to boil it down to, well, how did it affect two people their circle of friends and their families. And that's that was my meth methodology here. Yeah, and I'm grateful for you because when I met you, you interviewed me for your book. And then later on, you graciously wrote the foreword to my book, Love Finer Than Wine. I begin that, I begin that foreword with this picture, mm -hmm. which still sits on my desk. This is Matt and Sarah. 
I got this picture. And I'll put a, a link to that in the show note. Podcast. Good, good. It still sits on my desk here. This is my writing desk. Uh, and um, I, I looked at that picture every day. And I think I actually used to talk to it, you know, and say, you know, when I was stuck writing or something, I'd say, can you two help me? <laughs> Something like that, uh, yeah. be because as a I never met Matt and Sarah. Although uh, uh, Arlene Duker, Sarah's mom, thinks that Sarah and I might have been in the same location uh, when I was writing my first book, or when we went to some kind of community meeting. But I never met Sarah. I, 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 but I felt I got to know her. And as a matter of fact, when I was writing about her sister recently, her sister Ta Tamara had organized uh, relief efforts for some Afghan refugees, uh, Islam, Muslim refugees who had come to the Albany, New York area. And, and uh, Tamara was organizing efforts to get them clothes and shoes and that sort of thing. And I remember the first time I interviewed uh, Tamara in person, she was talking so fast. And a lot of people said to me that that's how Sarah talked. And I stopped the interview and I said, you know something? I think you sound like your sister. And she just started laughing. So I felt like I got to know Matt and Sarah in ways that, I mean, even though I didn't ever meet them, but I feel like I felt I got to know them. How, how did you get to know them as intimately as you could? Well, a, a couple of things. I, I, I interviewed their, their families as, as extensively as I could. And uh, the Eisenfeld families and, and the Duker families were just fabulous. Uh, you know, here I am asking them about the death of their son and daughter. And this is not an easy topic for anybody to talk about. And and even all those years later, it was still remarkably painful. But but I I, I told them, I said, listen, I, I, I want to do the best job I can to make Sarah and Matt as real as possible. And I can't bring them back to life in person but I can bring them to life on the page if you will help me. And they, they helped me greatly. And I, what I was drawn to not only in the interviews, but also, and, and it wasn't just family members. I, I, I tracked down friends and all kinds of people, teachers, that sort of thing. And Ed, you were one of the people I interviewed. But the other thing that I did was I, I wanted to try to get into their hearts as best I could. So I asked to try to get my hands on anything that they had written, diary entries, term papers for school, any of that kind of stuff. And, and so it, it's, it's a kind of vacuum cleaner approach as a researcher, but I think it was ultimately extraordinarily helpful because I was able to, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, when you think of a photograph as a series of pixels and you try to Put, you know, put in the dots on a portrait of somebody. And, and you, you might not be able to do it perfectly so you, have, so you have that person right there, but you're able to fill in enough dots that you can get a portrait of that person. And that's what I was trying to do with Matt and Sarah. Next time on My Teacher Podcast. So, Ed, this brings me to you. <laughs> so let's turn the tables here. Let me ask you about you. The day I arrived and there was Matt sitting at a oh, table wow. and we immediately renewed our friendship. My conversation with Mike Kelly continues with Mike interviewing me about Matt and Sarah. They were both embodiments of kindness. I think of them, I think of just pure kindness. Yeah. 
I wish to thank my guest, Mike Kelly, for joining me on My Teacher Podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Kelly Column. In the show notes, please find a link to more information about Mike's book, The Bus on Jaffa Road, available through all major booksellers. You can also find a link to my book, Love Finer Than Wine, The Writings of Matt Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker, available through Amazon.com. I am thankful for all of my teachers, especially my three children, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Theme music is by Sam Bernstein. Production assistant is Noam Bernstein. Internet art and graphic design are by Esther Bernstein. Please help others find My Teacher Podcast by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I welcome comments, including suggestions for future guests, at myteacherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out through Twitter at Podcast Teach, as well as Facebook. May the wisdom of your teachers guide you, and may you be a teacher to others. I, I couldn't get an interview with Shimon Paris for my book. I really wanted to. It wasn't necessary, and neither could I get to uh, Bibi Netanyahu, but I got to people around him. But I was able to interview a lot of people in the security services, which was very helpful for the book. Uh, some of them emerged as characters in the book.